Well, good morning, Life Church. How's everybody doing? Amen. Hey, just in worship this morning, as we were spending time in His presence, I just felt like the Lord just had a word for some of you. Nothing too intense. What's that, Dwight? Oh, you got another now? The kids go to kids' church, and uh, he announced it. Oh, he did. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, And I do sound. I can't hear. Thank you. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. This is, this is all in the recording right now. <laughs> Since this is so random, let's just holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. With all creation, I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. We adore you, Lord Jesus. We magnify your mighty name. You are holy. You are righteous. There is none like you, Lord God. You founded the world, Lord God, and you spoke it into existence, Lord Jesus. And you knew every one of us before we were born, God. Lord God, you had plans and you had thoughts that outnumber the sands of the sea for our lives. And we're grateful this morning to be a part of it, to walk with you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. I just felt like the Lord was saying he's not done with you. I just felt like the Lord was saying there's something prophetic that God is doing through you. That's bringing change to people around you. That the fact that you're here today and you're singing these songs is a testimony of God's greatness. And it glorifies him. And it builds into his glory. And I just wanted to say that this morning. Really excited to be with you this morning. My wife gave me strict instructions before I left the house. Probably four times. To say, Matt, please explain why I'm not there this morning. Uh, My wife was still on the schedule for worship at Southgate. And so she went and served there this morning. I dropped them off this morning. We did our Tim Hortons run at 7.15. No, 7.45. 7.45. Got our Tim Hortons run in there. Got the kids all settled in there in the church. And and, uh, kissed my wife goodbye. We prayed for each other. And so she's leading worship this morning at Southgate. Wish she could be here with us. um, But she's there serving. So um, really excited about what God is doing. Really excited about the future, excited to come and join you and serve you as we build the kingdom together. Amen? Amen. Uh, Well, this morning, without any further ado, let's dive right into the Word of God. Uh, The book this morning that we're going to be diving into is the book of Micah. And how this is going to work is I'm going to give you a little bit of a background about who Micah was. We're going to talk a little bit about the timeline. I'm going to highlight a few of the top passages in the book of Micah, kind of give you a little bit of an outline of how the book works. And then we're going to dive out of that into a little bit of a historical context so that we can dive back into it and talk a little bit about how it impacts our lives and what we can learn from this book. One of the questions that I always ask when I read the Bible is, what does this tell me about the character and nature of God? Because what I believe about God will determine what I do with him. And so this book's no exception, the book of Micah. Um, So let's just dive right in. Are you guys ready? Why don't we just hold up our Bibles for a moment? If you have a Bible, hold it up. If you have an app, hold up your app. That's good too. Say, this is my Bible. It helps me to know who I am. And it helps me to know who my God is. Amen. Amen. It's 66 books written by 40 different authors over about 1,600 years in three different languages. 
Yet it is now we see it as an integrated message system from outside our time domain. It's the word of God. Amen. Micah is where we're at today. And if you have your Bibles, why don't you just open up there as a reference point? Because I'm not going to be reading directly from it specifically um, throughout the morning, but we will be referencing it. Um, Just go in there to Micah chapter 1. Micah. Okay, let's get going. You guys ready? Who is he? Who was Micah? Micah was a prophet from a little town called, I got to read this, Morasheth, which was about 25 miles outside of Jerusalem in, the, in, in Judea, which is the southern kingdom on the border of Philistia. Uh, it was probably a small rural town, so Micah likely was uh, from a farming community, that sort of thing. And he arose during a time uh, in Judah's history uh, where there was three kings during his prophetic ministry. The three kings that were Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in, the, in Judah. And there was also a king in, uh, in, in um, Israel. And Israel was actually still there at that time. The northern kingdom of Israel was still a, a nation at that time. So he came out as a prophet, not only to Judah, but also to Israel. He was a contemporary of Isaiah's and Hosea. And so they were all prophesying around the same time uh, as him. Last week, we talked about Habakkuk, and this book was actually written about a century before Habakkuk. It was in a different era, in a different time. And this book is a book of judgment and restoration. Did I spell that right up there? Because I didn't spell it right on my notes. Judgment and restoration. And if I were to, to subtitle this message today, it would be the message of judgment and restoration. Written sometime between 749 and 700 B.C., a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea, he prophesied during the rule of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah in Judah. Written to both Israel, the northern kingdom, with the capital of Samaria, and Judah, the southern capital uh, kingdom, with the capital of Jerusalem. Some interesting facts about Micah. He was actually quoted by a few other books in the Bible. He was quoted by Jeremiah. He was quoted in the book of Matthew. There's a very famous passage in the book of Micah, which is a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about Jesus, a very famous one. And actually, if we want to turn there real quick, we'll just read that. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be the ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. I love this about the Bible, is that throughout the Bible you will find prophetic passages that speak into the future that are then again fulfilled in the Bible. And because the book wasn't written by one person, but actually 40 different authors, it proved itself throughout history. I love that about the Bible. And this passage was actually referenced by the Magi, uh, the wise men. How How many wise men were there? We actually don't know. Professor Taves in the back said, yes, we don't know how many wise men there were, uh, but we know that there was probably three gifts that were given, but there may have been multiple wise men. And when they came, you might remember the story of the wise men coming into following the star, and they came before Herod, and Herod said, hey, where is this king that is being born? Because I want to worship him too. He was lying. He wanted to kill him. And Herod said, where is this king? And they referenced Micah and said, in Bethlehem. And they referenced this passage there in Matthew. Jesus also referenced the book of Micah uh, later on uh, in uh, Matthew 10, 35 through 36. There's a few famous passages in this, in this scripture. The first one is this uh, messianic, uh, um, messianic uh, prophecy. And then there's another one here in Micah 6, 8 that many of you may know. 
And this is what it says. It says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. A very famous passage. And I can't help when I hear that passage think of a song um, by Stephen Chris Chapman called The Walk. And, and it, you'll never forget it. It goes like this. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Right? You're never going to forget that now, right? It's going to stick in your brain for the rest of the day. You'll be like, what's that thing going in my head? It's so good. It's so good to do justly, to walk humbly. We're going to unpack that as we move forward. But that's a very famous passage. Now, if we're to break down the book of Micah, how is this book broken down? It's broken down into three sections. out and says, hear me. And unlike Habakkuk, which we read about last week, where it's Habakkuk having a conversation with God, uh, Micah is actually a foretelling or a prophetic message to the nation of Israel and Judah. And there's a kind of a pattern that each one of these little moments or one of these little sections follows. The first is there's a rebuke of sin. So he talks about sin that he's seeing and and grieving about uh, as he looks around him. The second is an announcement of judgment. So first of all, there's sin. This is the problem. It's a case for sin. The second is an announcement of judgment. This is what God's going to do about that. And then number three is the promise of a messianic blessing. So there's the rebuke of sin, the announcement of judgment, and the promise of messianic blessing. It's broken down like this. Micah 1 and 2. Sin, announcement of judgment, promise of messianic blessing. Micah 3 and 4, 3, 4, and 5. Sin, promise of messianic blessing in the midst of that, but also an announcement of judgment as well. And then Micah 6 and 7. Sin, announcement of judgment, and promise of messianic blessing. So now, what does that mean for us. And what is God speaking to us today? Because God's always speaking. God's always speaking. So what is he saying to us today? And for us to understand that, we have to take a little bit of a, a step back in time to give you a little bit of a historical context of what's going on here so that we can understand how this word impacts us today. Okay, so here we go. We're going back in time here. And it starts out with 12 tribes that God has called out of Egypt. And they go into the land of Canaan, and they take over the land. And in some cases, they destroy the people. In other cases, they displace the people. But during this time, as they go in, and the the, the land is, is under conquest of Israel, the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, it's a theocracy at that time. And what that means is that God is in charge. And he appoints judges that rule over the nation during that time. But they look around as they become content and they set up their areas and they set up their cities and they get their different areas in the, in the, in the nation of Israel. And they look around, they realize that all the nations around them have something they don't have, which is a king. And so they say, God, we want a king too. So God provides a king for them. His name is Saul. He says, okay, fine, you want a king? Here's your king. His name is Saul. Saul turns out to be an awful king. He, he's just terrible in every way. He just, he just blows it big time. And at the end of his reign, uh, when he dies, there's another man that takes over. His name is David. And we all know about David. And David was a good king, but he was also a man of war. And so during David's reign and during his rule, he went around and subdued all the nations around them. 
and created an era of peace for his son, Solomon, who then became king after David. And when Solomon came to the throne, he had great wisdom and he brought wealth. And uh, he, he also taxed the people quite heavily, not only literally, but also physically as well, uh, uh, drawing from all the resources in the area to help build these big projects that he was working on. And so the people really felt that the taxation of it, they felt it, even though there was peace around them, they were un- discontented because he pushed them so hard. So when, when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. And Rehoboam uh, was a young man when he became king, and he did not, unfortunately, inherit a lot of his father's wisdom. Because when he became king, the people of Israel came to him and said, listen, you, your father was really hard on us. He really pushed us, so could you please give us a break? And Rehoboam, a little bit of wisdom here, said, okay, give me three days to think about it, and I'll get back to you. That's, that's wise. So he took some time, and he went back, and he talked to his father's counselors, and he says, what do you guys think I should do? And they said, hey, listen, listen to the people. If you serve them, they will serve you. Okay, that's what they said. And then he's like, okay, I like what you guys had to say, but I actually want to hear what my buddies have to say. So he gathered a bunch of his own counselors around him, and he said, okay, what, what do you think that I should do here? And they said, you need to be tough on these guys. They're going to walk all over you. If you let them have an inch, they're going to take a mile. And he says, you need to step up, and you need to show them who's boss. And Rehoboam goes, yeah, I like that. So Rehoboam stands up, and he goes, okay, he, he, when the people come back to him and say, what do, you got, what do you have to say? The Israelites come back to him. He says, okay, listen, if you thought my dad was tough, I'm going to be twice as tough. I mean, his, his thigh will be like my pinky finger. And I'm going I'm to rule you with an iron, iron rod. And, and you're going to do exactly what I say. And, and the people of Israel rebel. They say, forget it. And ten tribes go off to the north. And they take, the, they take the tribes and they, they go off to the north. And they say, we're going to form our own nation. And they, they appoint their own king named Jeroboam. And in the south, you have Judah with the remaining two tribes. And you have Israel, the place of uh, Jerusalem, pardon me, the place of worship. You have the Ark of the Covenant here. And in the north, you've got this new nation that rises up in rebellion against Rehoboam. And so their king, Jeroboam, looks around and realizes he's got a problem because the place of worship is back in Jerusalem. So he says to himself, if I let these people go back to Jerusalem, I'm going to lose my nation. I'm going to lose the wealth that surrounds me. And so I got to do something about this. So what he does, he seeks counsel and he builds some idols. He, he creates two calves, gold calves. He sets up one in Dan and one in Bethel. And what he does, he sets up a pseudo-religion that matches the worship of the true God, Yahweh. And he sets up his own priestly system. And he actually even sets up his own uh, feast dates that match the feast dates that the people would have been used to. And he says, okay, listen, guys, this is your God. This is your God, and this is who you need to worship. And the people respond and say, yes. And so idolatry enters into the land of Israel in the north. Whereas in the south, in Judah, there's still the worship of Yahweh. And throughout their history, 200 years pass, there's like one good king in Israel. His name's Jehu, and he's not even that good because he messes up big time. And, and, and subsequently, king to king to king, they just continue in this state of rebellion against God and continue uh, in, in, their, in their practice of idolatry and worship of foreign idols. And in the south, you have Judah, where you have the, 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 the center of worship in Jerusalem. You have the Ark of the Covenant. You have the Levites. You have priestly worship. But they also go through some ups and downs. 
And that's where we get into as we get into Micah. You go from one king who's a good king and there was an up, and then you go to another king and there's a bad king, and it goes to a down, and it goes up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And as we get into Micah, there's three kings that Micah is prophesying during. The first one is Jotham. He was a good king. Then there's Ahaz. He was a terrible king. He was awful. And then in the midst of that, there's Hezekiah at the end. And Hezekiah, during his reign, there's a reformation and a revival that takes place in the nation. So one thing we know about Micah is that his words held weight. And they were responded to and they did accomplish what they were set up to do. Unlike other prophets like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who nobody would listen to, Micah actually got people to listen to him. He had Isaiah and Hosea as his contemporaries, and they spoke up and brought about, helped to bring about a great revival in the nation. So that's the context of what's happening here. So as we dig into this passage, I want you to understand that 200 years have passed of this, where the northern kingdom is engaged in their idolatry, the southern kingdom is here, and they are borderline serving God. You see it? And that's what's going on. And that's where we jump back in here in, um, uh, yeah, so that passage about Jeroboam is in 1 Kings 12. Don't need that. Where are we at? Amen. So what's going on here? Well, Micah chapter 1. Let's dig right back into this. And we're going to read from verse 2 down to verse 5. The coming judgment on Israel. It says this, Hear all you people. Listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you and the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down in a steep place. All this, why? Is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Remember what the transgression of Jacob is? The sins of the house of Israel? It's idolatry. Remember that. Jeroboam sets up the idols and they never go back. Remember that? There's idolatry. Okay, then it says this. And what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Okay, so what's going on here? When it talks about high places, what is it talking about? What had happened here, you guys, is that um, throughout time, as people turned their backs on God, maybe didn't intentionally pursue him in the way that he had designed them to, inevitably what began to happen is they began to be influenced by the nations around them. And the pagan belief system was that there were many gods. And that the way to get the closest to your God was to geographically put yourself in a position to be closer to God. And they believed that those places were places of the greatest influence in the spirit realm. They were called the high places. And it was not uncommon for them to build all their idols and all their altars on these high places because they felt that they would be closer to their gods. And what Micah here is he's saying is, listen, Jerusalem has become a high place. It's become a place where people are feeling like they're closer to God. It's a place of superstition. It's where the pagans would put their shrines because they believed they were closer to God geographically and that they would have more pull that way. In other words, their pursuit of God had become a pattern. Their romance with the Lord had become a routine. And they had lost their first love. They had lost their first love. Here's my first point. 
God is after our hearts. God is after our hearts. You say, well, what what does that mean today? Here's what I believe. I believe that there's nothing new under the sun. I believe that the issues that we find in the Old Testament are the same human issues that we deal with today. That we are prone to wander from our relationship with the Lord. As human beings, we love to systematize things. We love to put them into categories because it allows us a sense of control over them. So if you have a desire to lose some weight, what are you going to do? You're going to start a workout routine. And when you start that workout routine, you have to do it every single day. And I've heard, I haven't experienced this yet, maybe I should soon, but I've heard that when you do it enough, you actually begin to crave it and long for it. And that all you want to do is get up in the morning and, and have your morning workout routine. And you put it in a category. There's my workout routine. And then often what you'll do is you'll put your work in another category. Okay, there's my work category. And I'm going to put that right there. And then some of us will put our marriage into another category. That goes in the the marriage category. And then if we're not careful, what we can do is we can take our faith in the Lord and we can put that into a category as well. And we can say, okay, I've got all these neat categories and I've got order in my life and it's all worked out. And then we say, now I don't need to worry about it because I've got it figured out. I believe as human beings, we're prone to do that. We're prone to do that. And how many know that in any relationship, if you don't physically work on it, if you don't intentionally spend time working on those relationships, they will fall apart. Do you know that? I mean, I got to tell you, my wife is somebody who's amazing at building relationships with people. She has friendships with people that she went to high school with, and she still makes an effort to go out and spend time with them uh, and do coffee with them at least two or three times a year. But in order for her to have those relationships, she actually has to put the effort in to build those relationships. If you have a marriage and, uh, and you get married to somebody, you say, well, we had this great romance and it was amazing and it was wonderful and we're going to be in love forever and it's just going to be awesome. And then you marry them and you say, I love you on the wedding day. And then five years later, you haven't said, I love you again. How many know that that's not going to go well? Well, I said it. Five years ago, yeah, but if you want to have a marriage that is thriving and growing, you need to invest in that marriage. You need to spend time together. Intimacy is time, words, and actions. So you need to spend time together in order to build that marriage. It doesn't just come because you've had a a, a great love moment, but it's something that's built over time, and it's done intentionally, and it's done in pursuit we need to be careful that our faith does not become a pattern, or that our faith, yeah, does not become a pattern rather than a pursuit. It's not a pattern, it's a pursuit. It's not just I come to church every Sunday, it's I'm after Jesus. Why are we here? It's to glorify Him. It's like Paul said, that I may know Him. That's what it's about, that's what God's after. And what had happened here in, 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 in Judah and in, 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 Israel, in Jerusalem is they had had this form of godliness. So we're good. We got the temple. We got the ark. We got the Levi. He was after their heart. And what God is always after is not just our acts of worship. He's after our heart. He's after our heart. 
Again, there's nothing new under the sun. In the book of Timothy 3, verse 1 and 5, it gives us a, an outline of, of what you can look for in the end times, the, the type of attitudes that will be there. And at the end of it, it says that the people will have a form of godliness but deny its power. Do we have a form of godliness and not know its power? It's not about a form. It's about your heart. And is it for him? Do you desire to know him? Is he your everything? You are my everything. Is he? And I will adore you. Is he everything? Church, I got to be honest with you. I need the gospel preached to me every day. There's times where I'll sit down on the piano at home and I will feel guilty because I'll be like, I haven't done this for like two weeks. And I'll feel guilty and I'll be like, this isn't genuine, this isn't real. But then what I realize is the fact that I'm singing the piano is a sign of God's grace in my life. That he drew me to that place and then I respond to him. And maybe you're sitting this morning and you're saying, I don't know what it means to have this personal relationship with God. I don't know what it means to be in pursuit of him, but I want it. And if you want it, if there's something in your spirit that says, yes, that needs to be me, that's the grace of God that pulled you into this place. And he's working on you even now. He's called to you and he's calling you and he desires to know you and that you would know him. It's about knowing God. There's a passage in the book of Matthew that highlights this idea of knowing God, that it's not about the, the form of godliness. It's not about the temple, and it's not about all these other things. It's about knowing God. It's about seeking him. And in that passage, it says this, that uh, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and have we not cast out demons and done all great things? And then I will declare to them and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's intense. And if you read that without grace, and if you read that without understanding what I'm just talking about, that sounds really harsh. But actually, that's gracious. Because God's saying it's not about your works. It's not about how great you can be. It's about Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's that God is working in you. And the key here is, I never knew you. God says, do you know me? Are you seeking me? Are you going after me? Are you desiring me? If you come to church every Sunday and you sit here and you think that's good enough, I've done it, check in the box. It's not. What? But I gave up wrestling this morning for this. Or whatever your thing is. Sunday brunch. Sleeping in. Pancakes. Well, that's great, but God's actually after your heart. God's actually after your heart. And when we get to the place where we long for the presence of God, like David said, that my soul cries out for the living God. When will I come before him? Right? That we would desire to know him. That we would desire to see him. And if we don't, then God, please change me so that I will. That's the heart of a people that will change the world. Those who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Daniel. Amen. Amen. Micah talks about this again when he talks about that very famous passage. To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 6 and 8 in the New King James. 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God? What is it? It's a relationship. It's that I may know him, that I may walk with him. God, search my heart. Know my anxieties. Know my eager desire to do your will. Search my heart and know me, Lord Jesus, that I may know you. That I may know you. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? That I may know you. Action and desire must be unified for true worship. Sometimes this works the other way around. Listen, what I'm not saying is don't try. Sometimes you come into a worship service and you don't feel like lifting your hands. But by faith, you need to lift your hands because then your spirit will come into alignment with your actions. Sometimes you need to, by faith, I don't feel like going to church this morning. Get up, go to church. You need to step out by faith and let your spirit draw in and be drawn in to that action. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's everything. Is he your everything? Is he your everything? Because that was the issue. That was the heart issue that Micah was speaking against in his book. Is he your everything? You combat apathy and presumptive faith. How? With the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. To turn one away from the snares of death. And what is the fear of the Lord? It sounds like a kind of a funny concept, but it's really simple. It's a constant awareness of his presence. It's knowing that God is with you wherever you go. It's not forgetting that. And it's living a life that reflects that. That God is here, that he's working in you, and he will complete what he has begun in you. God is my righteousness. God is my hope. God is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Amen? Amen. You guys with me? You're doing good. I've got one point left. Then you can go. (laughs) All right. Here we go. Number two. What else do we learn from the book of Micah? I love this part of it. That the goal of God's judgment is always restoration. just going to let that sit. The purpose of God's judgment is always restoration. What is his heart in all of this? Why is he doing this? Why is there judgment against sin? Because sin separates us from his presence. And you were designed to, to, to live and to dwell in his presence. You were designed to worship him. And sin separates us from your design, from what God's actually designed you to do. And he says, no. Because I'm looking for a people that will seek me. I'm looking for a people that will desire me. I don't just want a form of godliness. I don't just want all the, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like all the cattle. You can take as many cows as you want to and sacrifice them. It doesn't mean anything if your heart isn't for him. That's the goal. God is here to lead you into right relationship with him. Micah. 
4, 5, 1 through 5. We've got to read some more of Micah. This is a powerful passage in the midst of the book that is actually a messianic prophecy that has yet to come. And this tells us about his heart. It says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days, days we haven't seen yet, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the words into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up their sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk in, in, in each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. You know what I love about this passage is it speaks to the heart of God, which is that the nations will come. God's desire is to draw all nations and all people to himself. Just like um, Pastor Graham said this morning, you know, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That is the end result. We know the end of the story. But that's the goal of God. That's what all of this is about. Why? Because we were designed to glorify him. We were designed to magnify his name. I heard um, a preacher this week talking about um, this passage. And um, he started out by talking about how, um, talking about how uh, we have a problem in, in our nation around us today in, in society because we're all after pleasure. And that's a major problem. Um, and I agree that it's not good just to seek pleasure all the time. But I actually disagree with the idea because I believe that we're not aiming for the right pleasure. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. I believe that we ought to pursue him more, not less. I believe that we ought to set our minds on him more, not less. Because he is the ultimate. He is the ultimate. Again, the purpose and the, 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 the goal of judgment is always restoration. The glory of God is revealed in restoration. And the ultimate picture of this is Jesus. Romans 5, 9 through 11. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have now received the reconciliation. The ultimate expression of God's judgment that leads to restoration was seen in Jesus Christ. Jesus came as a sinless man. And he was fully God and he was fully man. And he alone was worthy to pay the price for our sins. And when he was nailed to the cross, the judgment and wrath of God was poured out on him. And he became the substitute for us. 
so that today we can stand before God boldly, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates his love for us in that. Church, we've all failed. We've all sinned against God. None of us can do it on our own. But he has come that we can be reconciled and brought back into a relationship with God. And this morning, we can be grateful because we know that Jesus has made a way for us. And he has paid the price so that we can stand boldly before the throne of God justified just as if we've never sinned because he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So as we close today, I want you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. First of all, I want to pray for you this morning. If if you're here and you say, Matt, um, when you're talking earlier about this form of godliness that denies the power, I recognize as I look inside that I've made it all about my works and, and just coming and just being and you feel the Spirit of God right now calling out to you and drawing you. And drawing you. I just want you to respond this morning. If you feel God's Spirit drawing you, don't wait. Just respond wherever you are. Just respond wherever you are. And just raise up your hands this morning. He's drawing you. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it tells us that the wages of sin is death. What does that mean? It means eternal separation from God. You are designed to dwell in His presence. You are designed to live there. You are designed to seek Him and to pursue Him. And that is the greatest journey, that's the greatest pleasure, and that's the greatest joy. And this morning, if you say, Matt, I haven't been on that journey. I haven't been pursuing God. I don't even know him. And you say, this morning, I want to know him. I want to know Jesus, and I want to put my trust in him. I'm tired of doing this on my own. I'm tired of living for myself. And I want to live for something greater. I want to live for God. I want to live for him. If that's you this morning and you've never responded to receive Jesus in your heart before, and you say this morning, I just want to know him, the way that you talked about it. And you feel right now in your spirit, in your heart. So now just everybody close your eyes for just a moment. I know this is old school, but we're going to do it. If you're here this morning, you say, I just, I want to know Jesus that way. I want to seek him too. Just put up your hand wherever you are. Is there anybody here? Thank you. Yep. Jesus. Do 
Joy, do we have communion this morning? No? Okay, that's okay. That's okay. All right, let's just stand together then, and we're just going to pray a blessing over you. Dwight has something he's going to say. And then I'll release you this morning. Thank you, Lord. Father, I, I thank you for this time to be with you, to love you, to honor you, so our hearts turn towards you. Father, help us to do that. Sometimes we just wander and, and we have good intentions, but sometimes we just forget. But remind us, Lord, when we're forgetting. Shed a light on our path, Lord, so we can find the proper way to walk. Help us to love one another, Lord. Not be prejudiced, not to worry about what they're thinking or how others are thinking, but how you are thinking. Father, thank you so much for this congregation. Thank you for Matt, Lord, and his heart. The word he brought to us, Lord, is so rich. It's good food, Lord. We want to eat that. We want it to go inside of us, Lord, and nourish us. We want that to be a part of us, Lord your word today. And Father, help us to walk this week, to be your hand extended to those people we meet, whether at work, whether in our own family, whether it's a neighbor, or it's just some stranger walking down the street. Father, our heart is to honor and worship you this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Bless you, people. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. I apologize for communion. We were supposed to have it last week. We were supposed to have it this week. Actually, I was preparing. I was supposed to do communion. I actually was doing it with bullets and things like that. And I heard God specifically tell me, don't do that. I still worried because I thought we were still having it. But I, I didn't actually finish that. And so I, I think, okay, Lord knew. But he still wants us to remember him. That's why we have communion, to remember him. So let's remember him. Bless you, people. Thank you so much.